0: Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with VEDs or Vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in this podcast are those of the individuals involved, and the information presented does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Welcome back to another episode of Staying Connected. Today, we are going to hear from Toni Harrison, who was initially diagnosed with hypermobile EDS. After an event, she received genetic testing that showed she actually has VEDS. In the episode, she is going to share her experience with the diagnosis. Before we go over to the interview, if you want to support this show, consider joining my Patreon. For a few dollars a month, you can make sure this show continues to reach people around the world with real-life stories about VEDS. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash translucentone. You can also support the show by sharing this podcast with people you know to help us raise awareness of VEDS around the world. Thank you so much for your support, and a huge thanks to my current patrons who have been supporting the show already. My top-tier patrons are listed in the episode show notes. All right, let's go to the interview. Hey, Tony, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today to share your story with vets or vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome with everybody. You want to go ahead and introduce yourself first off?
1: Good morning, or technically, I guess, afternoon. Um, My name's Tony. I am 36. Um, I have been diagnosed for, gosh, seven years now. Um, I was first diagnosed with type three or what used to be called type three. Now I think it's hypermobility type Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And then, um, I had this fun episode where my lung tried to murder me in the stomach. And, uh, I had a genetic test and found out that
0: I am, a, a VEDS, a VEDS patient. Wow. So before we jump into your story with you, if someone was listening to this episode and was like, what the heck is vets? How would you define that for them?
1: It's a connective tissue disorder. Usually, if I'm talking to someone that knows a little bit about, has a bit of a medical background, I I start with Marfans because people know Marfans. I'm like, oh, it's like Marfans, you know, less known cousin. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I'm talking to a brand new person, I try to explain it just really simply where it's a connective tissue disorder um, that affects our collagen, which is like the glue that holds our body together. And my specific type affects the glue of my vascular system. Um, It means that, you know, they fall apart easily. Um, I may have a, a shortened lifespan. I've got some wonky digestion issues. but. I try not to throw too much doom and gloom on them right away. Um, You know, you got to ease
0: them into something like this. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot to wrap your head around. Oh, 100%. So let's go into your diagnosis story a little bit. So you said you were diagnosed with hypermobility type or previously known as type three. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome first. How did you how did you end up there at first? It was a
1: long process. And for me, it started with migraines. I had some neck issues where my atlas and axis were not quite right. Um, I was seeing doctor, you know, headache specialists, neurospecialists trying to figure out why I had migraines, I had tremors. And then um, when the pot symptoms started, you know, I really, I started pushing and I was just going to the doctor all the time because it was affecting my work life. I was, calling in sick. I was having to leave lab classes. I was in college at the time. And it was just so disruptive and it was frustrating because I kept going to the doctor telling them my symptoms. But as you know, they're so widespread sometimes that doctors are just overwhelmed. Like as soon as they see your paperwork, if it's not their specialty, you you look like a hypochondriac. But eventually, thankfully, I saw a great doctor. He was actually my sleep doctor, but he took the time to go over my full history, and he gave me some insight and referrals to a rheumatologist that helped get me on the way. He specifically mentioned um, EDS, and he mentioned dermatomyositis, which was something I'd never heard of either. but. You know, he was just kind of throwing ideas out there, and he recommended I go to see a new rheumatologist. When he said EDS, I went home. <laughs> I found a really comprehensive list of the symptoms by by organ system. So it laid it out by your neurosymptoms, your um, your dermatological symptoms, uh, mouth manifestations, musculoskeletal. I went through and highlighted every one of those symptoms that I had and took it to that rheumatologist and said, you know, this other doctor mentioned that he thinks it might be EDS. And I showed him that list of symptoms because by that point i would learned if I go in and tell them, Hey, this is what I think, what I found when I was, when I was Googling, um, they're going to dismiss you. Mm
0: -hmm. If I
1: go in and say, Hey, one of your fellow men that went to one of your fellow fancy schools said, he thinks this might be it. what (laughs) do I know? I'm just a, I'm just a patient. I just experienced this every day, but he thinks it might be this. And could we look into it? And, um, you know, he kind of, he begrudgingly measured my joints and, um, he agreed to refer me to the geneticist.
0: And that was like, you were still in college at this point or how old? You yes. Were you this I, I was still in college. I'd actually,
1: I was in college for early elementary education. Mm-hmm. Um, When my neuro symptoms picked up and I started getting tremors, I mean, obviously I I didn't know what EDS was at that time. The doctors are telling me, oh, well, you have to be tested for MS and lupus. And all I knew was I felt like I wasn't getting any better. Mm -hmm. So I dropped out of UAB, which is where I was at the time and went to culinary school because I thought, I want to do something I love if I only have 10 more years to be functional depending on what's wrong with me. Um, As it turns out, the long lab classes in a hot kitchen are not good for somebody with undiagnosed POTS.
0: Yeah. And so tell for those listening who don't know what POTS is, describe that. So POTS
1: is um, a dysfunction of your autonomic system, which is kind of the automatic things that we do without even thinking about it. It's our breath regulation, our heart rate regulation, blood pressure, digestion, um, some sleep regulation, all sorts of fun things that um, you know, that you like for your body to do without you having to tell it to. And for me, um, it manifested as you know, I would bend over to put a file on the on the shelf, and if I bent over and my head went below my heart, it was like instant dizziness. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through vertigo testing because apparently. <laughs> Dizziness is a very confusing symptom and dizziness and vertigo are very different and have different causes. And sometimes doctors don't ask a lot of questions when they try to figure out which one you actually have. So when I'm telling the doctors, you know, I stand up and it feels like I'm flipping backwards. They're like, Oh, your inner ear is broken. I mean, that's a possibility. As it turns out, that's not what it was for me. It was just good old fashioned pots and um and eds i I, i'm not sure that they've established like the direct connection but um you know our blood vessels are a little more stretchy we tend to have some blood pooling that probably has something to do with it for me my veins and my legs tend to get a little distended Um, i'll get blood pooling there that hurts but compression garments are awesome um it's just it's it's a lot of a lot of random things that you wouldn't think are controlled by this one important system, but man, Oh man.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it's a lot. So here you are um, now in culinary school and you're diagnosed with hypermobile EDS essentially, and you're dealing with POTS and you said you have like the joint hypermobility. So then how did it take me from there to getting that genetic test for vets?
1: So I have had GERD for my whole life. Um, I was having really bad reflux where I couldn't sleep at night. And it was a problem I'd never had before. Um, I know when I was younger, I had reflux where, you know, I couldn't eat tomatoes because I would immediately throw up. Like anything acidic was just too much. Um, So I just avoided it my whole life and never thought about it again. And as it turns out, I'd been having silent reflux um, at night, so I wasn't feeling the symptoms until it got really bad, which I think is is typical for a lot of people. Um, so I decided to have a surgery to correct that because I'm already dealing with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I do not need something else that I have to worry about. So I decided to have a Nissen fundoplication surgery. Um which is really cool. They take the upper part of your stomach and wrap it around itself to replace the sphincter that you're supposed to have there that sort of protects your esophagus from all that acid coming back up into it. Mm -hmm. I had that surgery. I recovered beautifully. Um, They did a hernia repair at the same time. And I had that done laparoscopically. I mean, I left the hospital the next day, didn't even need pain meds. But then... Um, three weeks later I was at work and I was vomiting and of course, vomiting after you've had a, a procedure like that is not good. Most people can't even physically vomit after they have a fundoplication. In my case, it seems like it opened the hernia back up and bigger than it was before. Um, so my stomach actually migrated through the hernia into my chest cavity Um, it started strangling and it ruptured. And then my left lung collapsed. I had a bunch of infection. Um, I was in the ICU for a while. This time they did the, the hernia repair with mesh, which Mm -hmm. was awesome because as it turns out, my scar tissue is stronger than my regular tissue. So that's still holding. That's all good. The fund application itself, ironically was perfect through this whole ordeal. It held. Yeah. But the surgeon, Um, that worked on me at Brookwood. This was in Birmingham at the time. He said that working on me was like trying to sew up like raw hamburger meat. Um, And I knew enough about EDS at that point to, you know, to know that I probably needed a genetic test. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty easy decision. I'd been trying to have children at that time. I'd been going to a fertility clinic. And they had asked me about the genetic test. I mean, they knew that I had hypermobility type, but they still, you know, it, it's a, like maternal doctors tend to know a little bit more about vascular Ehlers-Danlos I've found. Mm-hmm. And they asked me, they're like, have you had one? Maybe you should have one. Um, but after that happened, I was on team. We should get a genetic test. Yeah. And I did. And a couple months later, I found out that I have the COL3A1 mutation.
0: And how did that change, like, your understanding of what your life was going to be like with this condition? Initially,
1: I I don't think I processed it. For me, I tend to think about things very scientifically. And until that point, I just looked at myself like a, like a, a scientific case. I was a case study. I was a patient. And I could look and see, you know, the chain of events and the causations and like, this is what's wrong. So this is what's happening. And I was kind of emotionally disconnected from myself as the actual patient. And after the vet's diagnosis, I I stayed that way for a while. And then my marriage got worse. And I realized that there was a lot emotionally about myself that I wasn't dealing with. And that I had to grieve, um, you know, sort of the life I'd always imagined that I was going to have. Like, it wasn't going to look like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's okay. But I I definitely, you know, nobody ever taught me that you might have to grieve while you're still alive. But you, it is necessary sometimes to let go of things that we've been really connected to.
0: Yeah. And that's a hard That's like a really hard part of this diagnosis is like coming to terms with, you know, these life threatening emergencies that can happen and the mortality and all of the things that, you know, finding friends with this condition and then, you know, having to deal with the fact that they might not be here forever. Um, There's so many pieces to this that makes it hard to wrap, wrap your head around, especially I think at the beginning and in the first few years you know, as you're like trying to initially, like the initial reaction can be pretty intense.
1: It's very isolating. I mean, when you, I, I don't want to sound like I'm comparing diseases because I I don't like to do that. But if you're diagnosed with something that's well-known, people automatically know sort of like they, there's a societal, there are rules around how they interact with you and how they treat you and it's diff- like when you tell somebody you have cancer, they don't constantly ask you, what's cancer? Right. After you're diagnosed with beds, having to constantly describe it to people or explain it to people, it's like dying a little death every time you have to explain it again, because it's it's almost like re-traumatization in the beginning, because it's, okay, Let me let me think about how I might die early today so that mm-hmm. I can have this this conversation with this tertiary person that I don't even see every day. Um and that was hard. And for a while I I even avoided doctors. I still I hate to go to the doctor because God, it's just it feels almost like PTSD each time because you're 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 gonna be dismissed. Mm-hmm. Like you just you're gonna bear your frustrations and your vulnerabilities and probably cry. I'm a big appointment crier. And at the end of it, you'll get a referral to another doctor so that you can do it all over again. And so that was also um, an extra frustrating layer of dealing with the the diagnosis.
0: Yeah. And that is so, yeah, I love the way that you described that especially like describing the experience of having to describe to somebody else, what that's is when you're just diagnosed with it. And I remember experiencing like trying to make other people feel better about it at that time. Cause they're like going through it and it's not really their fault, but they're going through this, like processing this information too. And then they, you can see them like start to get sad or devastated or like just have so many questions and they're very emotional about the fact that their, their friend or acquaintance or whatever has this condition. And this is what this means. And then now you're in this position when you're like, it's okay. Like, don't worry about it. Like you're like trying to make them feel better. And you're still in that space of like, Oh my God, what is my life going to be? It can really mess
1: with your head. Cause I mean, there have even been times where I think
0: "Is this all a
1: coincidence it's it can be wrong right like what if what if i'm fine and all of these problems are caused by gluten or something like <laughs> I, I don't know but there's yeah. there's just a part of me where i i think sometimes like it's what if what if this is this is, like what if i actually am a hypochondriac and i'm just like I've, what if I'm making myself sicker because I'm, I'm being lazy? Like, what if I'm just not doing enough? What if I'm not working out enough? What if I'm not drinking enough stupid ounces of water every day? What if I'm not managing my electrolytes? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think maybe I just have a personality type where I like to find guilt wherever I can get it and chronic illness will really play with any mental stuff you've already got going on, man.
0: Well, true. And also, like, I used to do that a lot where I would be after, especially after in the time after an emergency, like when my spleen ruptured, or with my artery dissections, like it, I just was trying to find what it is that I did, like when I had, a, I had a bunch of mini strokes, in the course of like a year, and I was like, okay, somebody told me it was the hot shower, somebody told me it was this, somebody told me, and I'm like, strictly trying to manage my the food that I'm eating and like overthinking about everything around me, like what kind of exercise I'm doing. And I think that in some way, like my brain was trying to find, is like regain the control over what that was and deny that it was a spontaneous event. Like if there was something that I did wrong to cause it, then it's a controllable thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that there's something there where it might be easier to find blame for yourself rather than at least for me cope with the fact that it was truly spontaneous and there was nothing i could do about it and that's like that's the hell that is vets it really is because I, I sort of
1: vacillate between um thinking i can be very careful and i can use all of my knowledge and information and i can cheat death and like i you know that's we've evolved we have knowledge i can do this Uh, But then I go back and forth. I switch to the mindset where I could die reaching for a Coke in the fridge. Nothing can be known. Nothing is real. (laughs) Like it's all imaginary. Um, And then I just let myself have fun and be free. But like I've, I can't one hundred percent live in either one of those worlds. Right. I just can't. It's a constant struggle. Um, I just try to find a balance where i'm being honest because that's some days that's the only thing that i can know that i am tethered to is i know x y and z
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know um i have a defective body it's cool like a lot of us have defective bodies in one way or another i am more likely to die earlier than somebody else but again, perfectly healthy people die suddenly every day. People die in car crashes. There are, there are all sorts of tragedies. And I'm not less deserving of quality of life because of the genetic cards that I was dealt. You know, mm-hmm. um, They can pry hot baths out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> I will never give up hot baths. <laughs> I have a sauna that I use because I hate exercise and studies have shown that saunas can actually be just as good as cardiovascular exercise so sauna is my cardio there there are just some things like I had a personality before I knew I had beds Mm -hmm. and there are just some things that I'm not willing to compromise on is that stupid maybe I don't know is it going to make a difference nope there are a lot of people out there doing everything right with this disease and it doesn't matter at the end of the day you just got to find a way to to be happy and have whatever quality of life you want for yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's going to look different.
0: Yeah, it is. It's always going to look different. So let's go back. Um, how old were you when you actually got that genetic test? 2015
1: is when I got the genetic results. So I'm 36 now. Math is not my strongest. <laughs>
0: So like seven and a half years ago, maybe. Yeah,
1: okay. it's been a little bit.
0: And you were trying to have a baby at that time. Has your vet's diagnosis changed how you view having a child? Is that something that you still want?
1: Yes. Um, the only reason I haven't done it is because I didn't want kids with the man I was married to at the time. Um now I have some new sperm that looks much better. So I'm I'm definitely still considering it. <laughs> but I I have so much respect for the medical community. Having the diagnosis is the difference maker. A lot of what goes into what we know about veds is, you know, from people that may not have been diagnosed until autopsy until after they died, or, you know, maybe they didn't get the intervention they needed because they either didn't have access to it, or maybe it didn't even exist at the time, but we we have a lot that we know now. Um, I know that I could get pregnant. I was a de novo mutation, we think. My mother didn't have it, as far as we know. I was still b- born a month early uh, due to placental abruption. And I think there's there's like some percentage of the genetic material in the placenta belongs to the baby. So I guess mm-hmm. if you have the weakened tissue, like you can still have that effect in pregnancy. Um, but of course, that was in 1986. And I was born in like a rural George County, Mississippi hospital. Now we know that women with VETS probably shouldn't go into labor. They do early intervention. We know that certain hormones that you produce post-pregnancy can weaken your connective tissue and lead to increased risks of you know post-delivery stroke. Like there are things that we know now that we didn't then. I wish there was a way to like sort of look at the data and sort out like what, what the outcomes have looked like since like 1990 on Mm -hmm. and nothing before, like just, just how well we've done in the past 10 years. Obviously there are some things we can't predict and we can't avoid, but we're doing studies in rats. Like we know which medications can strengthen our arterial walls. That's new. We have drug companies that are doing drug studies now specifically for Vascular Ehlers Danlos medications. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. And I I don't have to automatically give up on my dream of being a parent. Um, Because at the end of the day, when I think about being a parent, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. Kids are kind of like the boxes of chocolate from Forrest Gump, right? You, even if there's nothing wrong with you, you're not guaranteed a healthy baby. And, you know, I just, I have to be willing to parent a weird, sickly child such as myself. And I think that's okay. I've had a great life. Like, I I wouldn't feel bad given this life to another kid. If, If I'd had a diagnosis earlier in life, which my child would have now, oh man, that could have made all the difference. I mean, I... I just feel like it's a really personal decision Yeah, that everybody that has any kind of inheritable disease has to make obviously for themselves, but I don't want people to feel like they're automatically unable to have biological children just because they're diagnosed.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are like a lot of different uh, methods for that too now because they can mm-hmm. test the embryos first. If right. You very, feel very strongly that you don't want to pass it on. Right. Um, there's a lot of options out there and it's important to recognize that too. And and it isn't, I mean, it's definitely like this, not the same as it was even in 2017, um, the evolution of how we think about pregnancy and people with VEDS has changed. And it's important that it changes because I feel like we were kind of like, I don't know, when I came into this world in 2017, when I was diagnosed, it was just like, um, it didn't feel like there was a lot like things were about that was like about the time where things had really started to feel like they were changing but I mean from what everything I read there was hardly anything out there and it was like don't get pregnant you're gonna die at 48 like it was just totally uh, not it's kind of like um, (laughs) the first time I did the keto diet
1: Mm -hmm. and there were no already pre-made keto products so it's just like well you're living off of eggs and bacon for <laughs> the next three months. Enjoy your your cauliflower cheese pizza crust. Now it's so much easier. Like other yeah. people have realized they can make money off of you. So mm-hmm. you have thousands of products at your disposal. Um, so I'm just waiting for the ketoification of beds.
0: <laughs> I love that analogy. So let's go back to, so you had... It sounds like when you were growing up, you had severe GERD, which is very similar to me. Um, you had a hernia that you found out about at some point. You had this POTS and the hypermobility. But otherwise, did you have any features of VEDS or was it pretty subtle? Nothing
1: nothing like what I read about from kids that are like di- diagnosed early. Like I was always covered in bruises, but I, w- I was also always covered in like um, I had an overreaction to bug bites so I mean just in general I always looked a hot mess I was always injuring my ankles like I fell all the time oh my gosh I almost died of embarrassment because I there was I was walking to school in ninth grade we had just moved to a new town and we lived right by the school and I was like walking to school you know trying to look cool I tripped and fell in a hole (laughs) (laughs) And it happened to me twice that day, once on the way to school and once on the way back. (laughs) And I remember my mom just always saying, why are you so klutzy? Like I could never learn to roller skate. My ankles just weren't strong enough for that. Every time I'd get in the pool or something, like I'd get nosebleeds super easily. It was just always like, I was just a weird, I was just Tony.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it was different enough from the normal I, want, I don't even want to use the word normal, right? It was different enough from a documented Typical. presentation of vets mm-hmm. to where when you first saw a doctor, they didn't genetically test you.
1: No. It, actually, the geneticist, even after I got out of the hospital, she was like, well, you don't look like a vets patient. I was like, "Uh, come again? Because... It seems like I look like a VEDS patient with the exception of having big dark eyes. Like it was the facial presentation, I think, that was throwing her. Um, I also wasn't thin. I I get it. Like there is a presentation that you see because there are a lot of um, familial mutations and a lot of them that are more severe. I think they present the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, And those maybe are the ones they've been studying for longer or have more information about but thankfully she, she still ordered the test. That was all that she was willing to do. Her doctor's office would not help me find a lab to do it. Mm. They said, well, you'll have to find one that your insurance company covers. So I called Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama and I'm like, "Uh, I need a test for this gene. And I was like, "Um, do you, do any of your labs cover this? They're like, well, you're going to have to call them and ask. We don't know what code that would be like. we how would we know that? And I finally, I, I think I went on the support group and asked like, who's, what labs in the country do this? And I found one in Maryland that was willing to do my test. And I gave that information to, to the doctor and I was really anticipating a huge bill because they were out of network, but thankfully they did it as in network and I never had to pay anything for that. That's test, fantastic. So. I know
0: it was super lucky. It's really fantastic. So, if somebody listening was just going through this themselves, whether it be, you know, trying to get that genetic test or trying to cope with the results of that genetic test, um, what advice would you have for them from your experience?
1: Gosh, I almost want to say avoid Googling, but it's only because the statistics can look really bad. And if you Google vets, a lot of the information that comes up is going to be a lot of base layer superficial information, a lot of, you know, simple articles. But if you keep digging, you can learn that, you know, there, there are people with certain mutations that live normal lives into their 70s and 80s. Um, there are some types of mutations where you you may not have any kind of catastrophic event until really late in your life. I mean, it's not, it's not a monolith. Like it is a wide spectrum of, of manifestations. So I guess, um, you know, don't, don't jump on the gloom train right away. And I hate saying that because I am not a live, laugh, love kind of person that is very, oh, I'm in, like inspiration porn. Like, I don't want to be anybody's inspiration porn.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't want to make anybody feel better about it, but. It's easy to read it and think, holy shit, everything in my life is just coming to a grinding halt. What now? So I guess I'd just say don't don't read too much into that. Find a support group. That would be my number one advice. Find an online support group because in your community, you probably won't find many people. I've probably found two people in the wild that I've come across that have EDS. Support groups have been so amazing. We we really are the experts for our disorder, especially in the VED specific groups. Oh my gosh, the support you see, because we all, we wonder 15 times a day, okay, is this is this the thing I need to go to the ER for? And that gets very expensive. You can't just live in the ER. No, <laughs> you can't. They get very upset about that. So you really, you do need a sounding board. Of people you can talk to and also just people that understand how isolating it is. I mean, nobody, normal people, and I say normal people, I mean, typical people, I guess, or, you know, just. Non-vets people. Yeah, non-vets people. They don't want to hear about our death anxieties. Because as a a general rule, people are uncomfortable being confronted with their own mortality. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to be a Debbie Downer all the time. The support group is a place where we can all commiserate and get out our Debbie Downerness, I guess, but also lift each other up because we know how serious it is. And it it feels different when you're getting support from someone that you know understands versus getting lip service from somebody that that loves you but doesn't understand like how this is actually impacting your life. Yeah
0: that's great advice. And usually in the episode show notes I list like a place where you can go and see where the support groups are. So if you're listening to this and that is something that you do want to look into, check out the episode's show notes and there should be a couple of links in there for you to help you get started there. Lastly, I want to ask you. I always ask people now what they want medical professionals to know about vets because there are a lot of medical professionals who listen to this podcast and these stories.
1: From my personal experience, I guess what would have made the biggest difference was just them listening to me. Um, when I went to the ER, when I I had my rupture, um, I knew that I had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome at the time, just not which type I had. But I wrote that down and I remember them like asking me what that was. Like they were trying to Google it as they're walking beside my gurney and like that's that's fine I just like they but I still got x-ray imaging first I had to wait for that to be done I almost don't want to be too hard on doctors because they can't know everything about every rare disease and I I almost feel like it's on us to educate them about what an emergency in vets looks like so that they know, hey, we have a different imaging protocol when this happens. We're not going to do an x-ray and sit around and wait and see what what happens. Mm-hmm. But again, of course, we have to have a diagnosis for that to happen and that's tough, tough for people to get access to tests. I don't know. Yeah. Gosh, I don't I don't know how they could best help us.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of education to be done. And I think it comes from, as you mentioned, kind of like from all directions, right? It comes from us as a community. It comes from other medical professionals who are advocating in this space. And it comes from, you know, updating textbooks and CME courses. And like, it comes from all different directions and avenues. And this has been a
1: huge year for awareness. I will say I've Mm -hmm. seen more EDS stories the past year from big name people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I hope that that translate and in, translates into something meaningful for the rest of us that don't have millions of dollars to throw it at different doctors. You know, like if you're a cardio medical professional, learn about veds, learn about all connective tissue disorders. The old cliche is if you can't connect the issues, think connective tissues it's it's not hard to understand your body's made of glue if your glue is shitty x y and z is going to happen yeah you know it's not super difficult and there are a lot of us walking around um see this is how i switched back and forth i was like oh we can't expect doctors to know about (laughs) rare diseases but eds itself like the collective the collected types of eds it's not that rare it's like one in five thousand people we know way more about more rare diseases than EDS. Like we we could do more. VEDS, I'll give them a little bit of a break, like fine. But there's no excuse for not recognizing like, hey, somebody's having joint and muscle pain. I think the biggest hindrance, <laughs> one of mine, to getting diagnosed was that when they would ask me about joint pain, to me, it was muscle pain. Mm-hmm. I felt more muscle pain. I would tell them my entire body feels like a bruise. When someone touches me, it feels like I'm bruised. And that's because my muscles were overcompensating for my shitty ligaments and tendons and they were trying to hold my poor bones together. It's it's just, it's, it's little things. Like, uh, you know, it comes with experience. The more doctors know that they're coming in contact with us, the more medical professionals know that they have EDS patients, um, they'll learn. And I think younger doctors are a little more educated. I think that it may just be because they're, they have a little bit more of a holistic approach where they're looking at a whole person's history. Yeah,
0: But it might be also all the education and awareness that's been going into it as well.
1: Yes. It's probably a
0: great big combination of things that yeah. are impacting this, but I've noticed that difference as well. And it's important. And every time that there's somebody in the news who comes out as having EDS, like I'm really hoping that the article that lists the information about it includes information about all the types, or at least like, Hey, there's more than just this type. And here's where you that rarely happens. It's usually like Wikipedia. It's the Wikipedia summary. They all use the same, whatever
1: the first thing is that comes up when they Google, but
0: every time I'm like, Um, okay, this is the one, this is, but you know
1: what the best awareness is from patients themselves. Mm -hmm. There was a New York times article recently. I read it from an employee because she has a daughter that has EDS. So she's, she's front and center seeing it happen. I know a lot of us are medium writers and a lot of us do podcasts. Your podcast, of course, is super awesome for letting people share their stories so that we know what all of the manifestations of Mm -hmm. EDS and VEDS looks like. Like I said, we're, we're our best experts. Um, I also encourage people with chronic illness to go into the medical field. I'm actually starting school again to go back into nursing.
0: Awesome.
1: I, I was actually, I was listening to a podcast a couple of years ago and I heard this saying, it was solve the problem you were born to understand. Mm. And that's, you know, what, what truer purpose could I have than helping other people that are going through this same thing? Like this is, this is my lived experience yeah. there's there is nothing I, I know better than this you know so using that to be able to help other people feels like that's
0: the life purpose we are all looking for you know? yeah that's wonderful I love that so yeah. I hope that nursing school goes really well for you and I hope
1: so too I had a dream last night that I already wasn't going to classes <laughs>
0: oh, <no>. yeah just <laughs> Just it's for a recurring nightmare I've had
1: since <laughs> high school. I haven't been in college in so long, but I, it, it's still once a week. I'm like, I'm failing math class because I haven't <laughs> been going.
0: Well, I believe in you. And I do really, um, I love that idea of, you know, wanting to help others with your own lived experience with this condition. I think it's wonderful. So thank you so much for for doing that thank and you because you're the your hub
1: <laughs> you're one of the hubs that helps us us do it i've i've gotten so much out of your podcast truly i know other people have too so thank you for using your precious time and energy to do this
0: thank you tony i really appreciate it thank you thank you so much tony for sharing your story with Veds on the show and thank you everyone who listened in There are a number of opportunities to connect with others and learn more about VEDS coming up soon. I won't be able to list all of them because there are a lot, but these are just a few. The Marfan Foundation hosts in-person walks for victory around the United States. These are fundraisers, but they're also an opportunity to connect with others in your local community. In April and May, join community members at these events in Aptos, California, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Washington, D.C. Atlanta, Georgia, and Raleigh, North Carolina. The foundation is also hosting two symposiums on Marfan, Lois Dietz, and VEDS on April 15th in New York City and April 29th in Colorado. Also coming up is the foundation's conference, held this year in Chicago, July 13th to 16th. The Ellers danlos Society will be hosting a VEDS camp in partnership with the VEDS movement the weekend prior to this conference at Camp Joy in Ohio. Links to more information about these events can be found in the episode show notes. On our next episode of Staying Connected on April 22nd, we will talk to Emily Ranta, who was previously on the show in 2018. She'll share her experience with the bowel perforation and complications she's had since her last interview. Don't forget to subscribe to Staying Connected on your podcast player so you don't miss this or any other future episodes. And if you like this show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media to help us raise awareness of eds together. You can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash translucentone. Thank you so much, and I will see you soon.